Welcome to the Alporn Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by uh, James S. Wine. Welcome, James. Thank you. And uh, for the sake of the rest of the conversation, do you prefer to go by James or Jim? Jim. Jim. Okay. So yeah, Jim is joining us here from Columbus, Ohio. And uh, we're kind of interested to see some of the things that you do with the Alphorn. But before we get into that, kind of just what instruments do you play outside of the Alphorn? Just because there's not too many of us that only play Alphorn. But yeah, so what are your other instruments and how did you get into playing music? Well, my primary instruments are string bass, bass guitar, tuba. And I got started in music in sixth grade playing the clarinet and the world's a whole lot better place now that I'm not playing clarinet. <laughs> then in high school, uh, and it's a longer story than you have time for, I was caught fooling around on a tuba. Band director walks in the door and I thought the end of the world is going to come. And then he said, hey, how would you like to learn that? So I said, yeah, I'll learn it. <laughs> and it started a great journey and a career in music education. My favorite grade level is middle school, and people think I'm nuts for that, but I was probably as half as crazy as they were. That's fair. Well, it's uh, it takes a special takes a special individual to work in middle schools. And, so. and Jim, what what was it that you loved about the middle school? The kids, they they were so energetic, pretty imaginative too. And I would do some goofy things. And there was once one year I was a little bit, shall we say, a little bit too loose, pegging a baton at the drum section. Go figure. And it hit the blackboard behind them. They're saying, we're listening, we're listening. Well, I must have done that too much one year. It's spring concert. They got the whole band together. And on at the opening of one of the tunes, I give a downbeat, no sound. And it throws you physically off balance. The whole band threw a little six-inch stick at me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Hilariously creative. So, and I tried to use humor for discipline. It's like kids would cut through the drum section, which they're not supposed to do, and stuff falls over. And one time it happened, a kid went through, knocked over a snare drum, and I hollered, stop. Point at, pointed at him, the whole room froze. And I said, that is the wrong way to do a drum roll. <laughs> so you got to have fun with it. Yeah, I like I can remember uh, being that age a little bit. And yeah, if you don't have a little sense of humor, then then it's going to it's just not going to go well, because I don't think anyone likes the teachers that are too serious at that. At, well, at any age, but especially in the middle school range. So what what was it that kind of made you want to go into uh, music education in the first place? Like, what was the inspiration behind that career move? That's difficult to say. I kind of fell into it. I was I started out uh, music major in college at Ohio State University. And I started out thinking, I'm going to be a professional tuba player. Well, about a couple of years into it, every new tuba player we got into the school of music was placed ahead of me in band that sent a real strong message so i gravitated towards music education and the more i got into it 
the student teaching and everything, the more I liked it. I started out doing just all elementary schools. And I'd have 10 elementary schools to cover in a week, just teaching uh, fifth and sixth grade beginners. Loved it. And then through some changes in the school system, I got assigned to a junior high, which became a middle school and stuck with it. I even had a, uh, while I was at the middle school, I had a high school job offered to me, like on a platter. Hey, we'd like you to start playing or directing at the high school. It was mid school year. And I think I surprised him. I said, no, I like it where I'm at. I, I can imagine that was a, a little bit of a shock because I, I assuming for most education systems, that would be seen as a pretty clear, what's the, I, I mean, just a, a raise and a promotion. There we go. But yeah, like I said, I, I, I admire you enjoying and sticking with working with kids, especially at the younger part and, and instilling kind of those, the basis for continuing on in music. Cause I think that's one of the hardest things to do. And it's very admirable to teach any course in middle school, but especially, you know, for our purposes of music and arts, having someone who's dedicated to giving them a good structure at the beginning. And it makes the whole journey of musicianship easier from there. Well, I've had a lot of fun of it. A uh, fair number of my students have gone on professionally or are actively playing as amateurs. And that's really cool. So we'll kind of carry on a little bit. Um, and when I was kind of going through and doing some research, I, I kind of came across a story that you were with a German-speaking choir on a tour in Austria. Is that where you were introduced to the Alphorn? Or is that where you kind of first got your hands on one at least? First got my hands on one. Uh, we happened to be there during the summer solstice. And the way it wasn't a, a um, tour company, we worked it out with an Austrian national who we knew very well. And he got us out into the community. So we're up in the mountains, summer solstice. Their thing is come midnight, they light bonfires across the top of the mountains all, all through the area. And then, uh, of course, the outpourings play. And we were at, at another time that got, I, I liked the sound then. But another time, uh, we were at a, a bar in the, out in the mountains in the middle of nowhere. And there are a couple of outpourings leaning against a post, and they let the tourists try it out. So I tried out uh, outpouring, and I was just ripping around on it, being a brass player, just having fun with it. And next thing I know, one of the locals comes up and uh, gets my attention. He runs into the bar and gets a little book of manuscript handwritten music and we started playing duets together now neither one of us had the other's language but we just had a blast and i think that's what first got me going then later in the same trip we met an instrument maker who made hammered dulcimers a what i call a country harp you know the, the smaller harp not a full concert harp and outpourings well, he also had one leaning out against his house outside. He definitely didn't have any English. And everyone's talking and carrying on. And I kind of wandered out to the outside of the house and started playing the instrument. Obviously, he heard me. He got an instrument from his shop. 
and uh, came out, same kind of deal. He had this little book of manuscript and we start playing duets together. Total blast. Uh, he made Alporns and I ordered one from him before we got home from that trip. And that, that was my first Alporn. Very, very much, I don't think there's uh, any kind of machining on it. Only two pieces, so six foot for each piece, crewed by the quality instruments that we have available to us now by that standard. But it got me started. That's a that's a fun story. I think I think most people don't get a chance to experience um or at least most Americans kind of will see them before they get to Europe. So it's kind of a fun to see the other side of that. And I guess uh what what was the time frame of this tour? Like when did you start playing the Alporn or when did you get your first one? Right about 2001. Okay. So yeah, that was before the Alporn I think really started to take off. Here in the here in the United States, like they were around, people knew about them, but they certainly certainly weren't as prevalent as they are today. There, we had a local that had been playing Alporn for years, and my thoughts were to play, start playing duets with him. Then a third person got interested, and the three of us started practicing, and it grew from there. I found available. Uh, Heimatklang was new then. So I actually, and inexpensive by the real quality standards, and uh, ordered a few instruments wanting to grow the group. And from school, I know recruiting. I, it's like I'm, just think of me as Professor Harold Hill. I, I learned my recruiting from, from uh, music band. And I'd put an instrument in their hands. And in fact, I'd invite a French horn player to come to a rehearsal with us. And one woman really liked the instrument. And I said, well, I just happen to have one or two available. And she was hooked. She bought one. And that frequently is how I get people interested. I, hey, try it out. They first like the sound, but then when they play it, they're hooked. Yeah, that's kind of the the same experience. And it seems like you do a really good job of getting just horns to people and and getting them interested by just just that hands on experience, which is I think that something's really nice. And that's that's one of the things that you know my project is to figure out how to continue growing the instrument. Um, so just learning different methods that that people are using to just get more interest in in what we're doing. So along with that, I, I think I saw that you you do some master class type programs. Do you focus kind of on high schools or colleges or or other kind of professional settings? How do you run those? Well, um, actually, those were uh, discovered, shall I say, or worked out by another member of our group who had some college connections and uh, we did some master classes and by then I'd accumulated several extra instruments. So again, it's always, Hey, I got extra mouthpieces. I got extra instruments. You want to try playing the instrument? Let's go for it. You know, after we tell them all about it and play for them a little bit, we give them a hands-on and that's always a hit. 
the one college we did it with their uh, French horn studio. And by then I had enough instruments, one for, well, with Beg Borrow and whatever. I had enough instruments that every kid in the studio could play. And so the teacher worked it out. So they had a um, studio recital. Half the recital was all French horn. And then the other half was all Alphorn. And that was really cool. And that's, you know, you, you get the kids in college interested and it goes from there. I helped Laura Nelson out with one at uh, Penn State, similar kind of deal, much larger scope. Between the two of us, we had just a ton of instruments and we had three groups of, I don't know, about a dozen people that tried out playing the instrument. Several of them got so excited they wanted to know where to buy the instrument, how to get music, just like right on the spot. That's, yeah, that's, I got to figure out how to get into some more connections in that collegiate level and then start doing some of those other events. I need to, those are the connections that I need to work on right now. Sean, are there any questions for, for Jim that are coming to mind for you? I have a lot of questions. Jim, you talked about playing the, t- the tuba and, and, and then having this uh, amazing career in music. What, tell me what your thoughts are transitioning to the Alphorn and what, what were some of the similarities between the instruments? Well, uh, I was kind of the odd person out because of I'm a tuba player. Most people that switch over are, are French horn right? because they're pitched the same. And, you know, your ears used to seeing the notes that you're playing on the page. That was quite an adjustment for me because bass clef, oh, I'm not looking at the notes <laughs> the way it sounds. And after I got used to it, in fact, another member of the group, in deference to me, would take the fourth parts out and write them out in bass clef instead of treble. And oh my goodness. <laughs> so I, I, I'm the fourth part guy, you know, always playing the pedal tones when I can and everything. And I love the fourth part that's, or third, whatever is. Yeah. So the similarities between the two, I, I mean, were there some was it an easy transition? I mean, obviously you were a, a an accomplished musician at, at this point, but uh, and when you talk to your students about using the Alphorn as a as a tool or uh, even pursuing Alphorn as a discipline, how do you approach that? Well, uh, for me, the similarities were get a mouthpiece close to the same size as a tuba mouthpiece, thus always playing the low range stuff. As far as getting them interested, I would let their enthusiasm carry it. Uh, It's hands-on, play the instruments almost universally. Once they've done that, they're hooked. Do you use a large tuba size mouthpiece today or have you gone smaller i i've gone a little bit smaller mm-hmm. it's, it's more a baritone size uh, i think the size marked on the mouthpiece is like a 27 <laughs> okay that that so that's uh 
at the top of the the, the range, um, but smaller than a, a tuba mouthpiece. And uh, what was your experience of playing these forged mouthpieces and then transitioning to a wood mouthpiece? I, I really don't remember much about that. It's like I after I tried the wood mouthpiece, I liked the sound better. Okay. And it was it's what it's built for. Right. Let me ask you a question about uh, teaching your middle school kids. I was interested in your comment on that you you love playing uh, the fourth part, and I see a lot of you know Robert off, often picks up the fourth part. There's some. Uh, I think there's a there's almost a, a personality uh, tied to to that low register. How would you teach your middle school kids in playing other, you know, so I, I think uh, playing one and and four, whatever the low register is, is fairly easy. How did you teach your kids to play those two, th- three, or f- four parts? In, in harmony, especially with an instrument like, like the Alphorn? Well, first of all, with the kids, I had mixed ability levels. So the kids are with others that play better than they do, and they have something to emulate. And uh, that's true with Alphorn, too. I always let, I, I'm a strong believer in letting a person gravitate to what they're most comfortable with. And if you force them into something they're uncomfortable with, you're not gonna see them very long. They'll stick with it and they'll have fun playing third part or second part or whatever the, you know, the inner parts that really give the music its soul. So it's, I'm big on personal choice. So you would let them, if they want to play one, or if they want to play four, or, you know, they want to play harmony in, in some of these pieces, you, you just let them self-select. Yes. Were there any tricks that you used with your middle school students in having them learn harmony for pieces? I. I'm interested to know your approach in this part of band. Yeah, that's something I never thought of, <laughs> to be honest with you. With the woodwind instruments, it's a no-brainer. You know, you blow in the instrument, you put the fingers down over the correct holes, you've got your harmony. <laughs> right. and, uh, the brass instruments, that's a different uh, story, but it's putting good players with lesser skilled players. I like the concept of power seating where say you have uh, nine trumpet players and you put them in order of best to least skilled. Well, I would take, uh, there's usually three parts. So the great thing is you take your top two, three, uh, three players and one of them is 
the head of the first trumpet section, then the next one's the head of the second trumpet section, and the next one's the head of the third trumpet section. And then those children on those parts have a chance to hear what they're supposed to be doing from a kid who knows what, uh, what's going on. That's an interesting approach. So placing these strong musicians into each parts and then and then having the less developed musicians just follow somebody they're paired with. That's was typically your approach. Yeah, that they have something to emulate, you know. Right. If all they hear around them are people playing wrong notes, well you can you can imagine the results there. I loved your story about you had this lo- love of the instrument and then you just bought bought these instruments and let people play them and and fall in love with it. This is a very similar story to Leavenworth, Washington, which I just love this. They applied for a grant, won the grant and bought I think a dozen Alphorns, if if I remember right, Robert. And then the community said, this is, this is part of our community. We're a Bavarian themed and historically Bavarian uh, town. And they gave these instruments to individuals who were interested in pursuing this. And they had to commit to practice and perform you were doing this a long time ago. And so talk about your group now. And you, you talked a little bit about how this uh, developed. What What is the group's focus and uh, how often are you together? I wish I could say we got together on a regular basis. We don't, especially in the winter months. That's difficult. I have found through a connection, an Audubon center that on the weekends largely goes unused. So we've started when I could get people together, I'd, whoever could show up, we'd get together in a big open space indoors there. And then in the old part of Columbus, there's what they call German village. Right. And German village heritage goes back actually to the American revolution. There were German soldiers who are part of the French army that's a long story, but they were granted land in the central Ohio area. And that's when our German village started clear back then. And my own family, uh, I know where the house is that they built in 1832. My goodness. But it is a, a very much a, a, a strong German heritage. It's kind of gotten away from that. But in the center of it is a park, Schiller Park. And in good weather, we would practice there. Uh, how many events uh, do you get the the group playing at throughout the year? Like, I, I mean, probably like most of us, it's it's busier during kind of the Oktoberfest season into the fall. But how often do you guys go out for performances? Uh, anytime we're called. <laughs> I just recently did something for Tiffin University. They were having a, a dinner, an international dinner. And they hired us to come up and play for the dinner. We only played 15 minutes. We got a god-awful amount of money for that short time, but I'll take it. And there's 
music festivals around the state. There's a festival in Mount Vernon, Ohio. Uh, they've contacted us to play. I haven't got an answer back on that. And that's in the August timeframe. I have another one coming up, uh, My Fest in Zor Village in Northern Ohio, which is obviously a, a German, Germanic background. And we're hooked in town with the Germania Club and the Menachor, which is another German-themed club. So those gigs, we play the Columbus Oktoberfest. We're a staple for opening day there. And then uh, whatever else comes along, uh, private dinners and parties. Uh, I kind of have two separate groups. Uh, one of them I call Alphorn Gritzy, and that's the one that's just all Alphorns. And the other one we call the Ohio Alphorn Band, and that's two or three Alphorns with an accordion player. Just to mix it up and keep it interesting and actually give the Alphorn players a chance to let the roots rest. <laughs> what does Gritzy mean? Greetings. Alphorn greetings. Yes. Okay. I love that. Well, and you're right. The German culture is so strong in, in Columbus and uh, throughout the Midwest. I've spent a lot of time in Columbus and they are proud of their German heritage. So uh, we have a festival that we started doing oh, almost as soon as I started playing in Sugar Creek, Ohio. It's a, they have an annual Swiss festival. And we first, two or three of us, when there was, that's all there were, would go up with the Swiss choir. Well, we grew, the Swiss choir is kind of shrunk, and then it ends up with just us. And now that's our go-to big event. Every year, we're like regulars. Every time they have a festival, I'll, we'll get our largest turnout. and. I'll have anywhere from 12 to 14 Alphorns there for that. <laughs> that is fantastic. This is kind of circling back and kind of breaking the, the chain of where the conversation was going. Um, but you mentioned um, on Alphorn liking the feel of the wooden mouthpiece, which with Alphorn, it tends to kind of be more in sync. But have you ever messed around with the idea of using wooden tuba mouthpieces? Is that something that you've ever experimented with? Never even thought of it. I, I mean, I, it, it just feels like it's one of those where I've seen a few French horn players will do wood mouthpieces once in a while, but I'm like, that seems so fragile for the wood. But I felt like a tuba mouthpiece, I think you could actually make something that would be sturdy enough to use for a few performances. So I was just wondering on that, if that's anything that you'd ever done. I, I, I never, uh, that's an interesting concept. I'll have to try it sometime, but I've never thought of it. In our group uh, that is with us when his time is permitting, uh, which is not much, but he's always at Sugar Creek, we have uh, Tony Zelinchek, and he's a tuba low brass instructor at Capital University. And oh my God, he is an amazing tuba player. He does things on that instrument that I just don't even believe. And put him on an Alphorn, he'll take a tuba mouthpiece and play any part you want. My goodness. 
it just it just blows me away. And he'll demonstrate what he does on the instrument sometimes, and I can't even describe. He he'll bounce all around through the range of the instrument. I call it a bebop outhorn. Just it's incredible. That's fun. Jim, one of the things that uh, I just love about the Alphorn is that the instrument's a piece of artwork itself. Are you, do you have a, a favorite instrument that you play? And if you do, can you talk about that? Yes, I started through a fluke with the Rocky Mountain Alphorn and myself and another guy found two of them, not one, but two for sale on eBay. Wow. Uh, somebody in California, I, I had already tried one of the instruments and compared to mine, it was like going speaking brass instruments from a con director to a top of the line professional instrument. It was just an amazing difference. And I started, uh, that was my second instrument. And it's like, wow, this is really cool. And then I went to the retreat or whatever. I'm sorry, Robert. Or, yeah, uh, um, the North American Alporn Retreat. In North American Alporn Retreat. I've only been to one. That's a long haul. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's uh, why there we're are, doing more events that are closer to people. Yeah. There I got introduced to a Zoner. And that was even better. So I really, really like that instrument. Very well built. It uh, suits the kind of playing I like to do with the third and fourth parts. And it's even easier to play than a uh, Rocky Mountain horn. But uh, then I, I couldn't let well enough alone because uh, the horn comes through with no decoration whatsoever. <laughs> So Tony can tell you this. You probably, you may not have seen it. Yes, I did bring it one to that uh, time. I had the whole the bell painted. I knew the um, art teacher from the middle school I taught at. Just an amazing individual. I said I'd like you to paint up the bell, and I said you can do. Here's the space you got to deal with. Do anything you want with it. Well. She painted the entire bell from where the rattan stopped out <laughs> to include inside it. Oh, uh, my goodness. She actually painted an eagle inside the opening of the bell and just anything Austrian or Austria, Swiss themed. She had, you know, the, that's their national bird, too and kind of like some mountain scenes and such as I thought it was, is this too much? <laughs> well, definitely not in Sean's book. No. I, <laughs> so one of the things I've uh, been doing for several years now is co collecting the bell artwork. I think I have uh, 200 photos now of different of the different bell pieces that uh, I've collected over the last several years. And so I'm 
fascinated by that. And I did the same thing. I had a uh, my one of my favorite artists commissioned her to to paint the bell, and I'm just I'm in love with it. Oh yeah. So is this so this honor honor uh, uh, instrument is what you primarily play now? Yes. And it, it's your favorite uh, instrument. I, I just I think it's so fascinating to see this uh, emotional connection that these Alporn artists develop with their with their instrument, and it's <laughs> it's an, it, it's it's emotional for them. Yeah. Well, and back to the Sugar Creek Festival, I had a a former member of our group who used to live in German Village, and he moved out of state like, you know, he's 500 miles away. And this last summer, he came up for Sugar Creek, made the trip. And, of course, for Laura Nelson, she's northwest Pennsylvania. That's not exactly a short trip for her either, (laughs) her and her husband. Jim? Do, do you um, ha- have any uh, favorite pieces of Alphorn history or trivia that uh, you can share? One of the things, well, there's several things I like is uh, I call it it's the instruments in tune with nature. And I've not had this happen to me personally, but I've talked to others who have. I'll start with Laura Nelson. She was in Switzerland. And she was going to compete and she was off out in the boonies somewhere practicing. And she said when this happened, it kind of blew her, it it freaked her out. So she's playing a while and cattle started to gather around the fence line. (laughs) A similar instance with one of our players, other players in our group where they were out in a wooded area playing and some deer came to the edge of the field and i don't know how else to describe it they just stood there transfixed it's just something about the sound of the instrument and the overtones that make that unique sound that's just like i say in tune with nature it's just amazing and we hear these stories all the time, and uh, both Robert and I have experienced this firsthand. It, it, you're exactly right. It is just this phenomenon that uh, animals and people gather around these these amazing instruments. Reminds me of, uh, so I, I've seen the cows come into the horn playing as well in Switzerland, and then I was reminded of one time we were over there and it wasn't that they were necessarily attracted to some horn playing. Um, but there was, uh, like a, a group of kids. I, I think it was something equivalent to like a boy scout troop. We're out doing like a, a little campfire camp out kind of thing. And I just remember this one cow that I, I think might maybe was a year old. Like it still wasn't like fully developed. It was, it was still pretty small. But it like snuck up behind these kids and was taking marshmallows out of their bags. <laughs> just, <eating. laughs> just, yeah, just, I don't know why I was particularly reminded of that, but cows are, uh, they're, they're fun and they can be gregarious. And I, I think that lends to the horn as well um, of just being pretty opening to people and animals alike. 
So I, I know that you have been out to the North American Alpern Retreat. Uh, have you been able to go out to, to Monica's event in West Virginia? I was there the last time they had it before the virus hit. I think it was 19, 2019. That's right. Okay. Uh, I, do you know if, if you or any of the players in your group are, are going to try to get out there this year? We, oh, I'm definitely there. I have gotten into the printed music. I, I'm not, I can't call myself a composer, but I'm reasonably skilled and I'm a detail oriented person with uh, finale. Yeah. So at the end of the, that retreat, the music book they had, uh, there were some things about some of the music that just bothered me, like one of the things, and it's not the pitches or anything like that, it's just how it was printed. I don't like collisions between dynamic markings and notes or staffs or anything like that. It sounds like you, Robert. Uh, the amount of time that I have spent making my books look good is, I should figure out how to pay myself oh. hourly because I would be much wealthier than I am now. This sounds like this sounds like you. Oh, it's just so. I started out and I just offered, "Hey, let me clean up this music for you. Will you let me?" And they said, "Okay, go for it." So now with Laura. We're putting together another book for this summer, and I think both of us are gotten a little bit carried away because right now we're talking putting fifty titles in this book. Wow, that's that's that should be enough for the event. <laughs> that should be enough. <laughs> uh, I, you know, my my thoughts are, hey better too much than too little and you have all kinds of skill levels there and we let them take the book with them so they got something to do to work with and they gravitate to what they want to do i've gotten into another thing that i with bitonal outporn now that kind of bends my mind and my ear, especially when you think music theory. Yeah, I can't think about it too. I can play them okay, but if I think about it, it doesn't work. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, just like, it's different. So one of the things I like to do in notating the music is uh, the melody line bounces between different parts. So if you only have two parts, It'll be, it'll, you'll see the melody notes in the first and second part, just back and forth. If it's three parts, you know, it expands sometimes that way. I hated these little X's and crosses that they'd used for that. It's just cluttered up the music. It took me a long time and an incredibly amount of time to pull off. But I figured out how to make those notes a different color. Oh. Mm. And I did a book of duets for Laura where she did one bitonal tune. And in that book, the melody notes are in red. Wow. So they're there. You can clearly see what they are. If you just want to really know what the melody is and what's going with it, it's right there. And then that got me to thinking that's a dangerous thing. 
music has gotten away from color. It's just black and white. Well, I found out with the music program finale, when you're creating the music, it does expressions in one color. It does, uh, I think, green is one color. And then another one is red for whatever, uh, like crescendos, decrescendos, that sort of thing. And I thought, why shouldn't we put the color in the music all together? That's, that's how music started with uh, illuminated manuscripts. Yes. Why not go back to that? So that's my current passion. I want to put, of course, it's expensive to print, but oh my goodness, the, the visual just knocks your socks off. I am so excited to hear you talk about this. One of my goals this year was to memorize, completely memorize 40 pieces. That that was my objective. And I have been working closely with uh, Natalie Grana on some music theory. And one of the things that has really helped me in memorizing these pieces is to color the phrase color repeats. And when I think about the color in my mind, it really helps me like uh, almost like a roadmap. Think about looking at a piece and saying, okay, this phrase repeats, this measure repeats, this measure is similar. And, and that color for me is so valuable. It has been incredible in helping me memorize these pieces. That's a, an amazing point of view. I never thought of it that way. That's... I started to think about this music as a, like a roadmap. And yeah, and I hear, uh, you know, I've heard Jim Hobson and, and Bill Hobson and other, uh, um, Robert, you've talked about this as well, looking at a at a piece of music like a roadmap. Well, I, I've been thinking about that. How do I navigate a piece of music and like looking at a map and memorizing the map. I needed that color to help me do that, replicate this where I can just say, okay, this, this phrase repeats, this measure repeats, this, you know, this is the movement and dynamics through color. It's really helped me in memorizing these pieces. So I've never heard anybody else Who's who said, oh, I'm in love with taking and making this music colorful. I think it's taken it to the next level, really. Uh, love this. It, it's, it's really, especially where you have two parts on one staff and they're right. squeezed together. Right. And sometimes the notes cross. Right. You do what, and it's easy in finale because you they have this layer thing. Yep, that's right. You know, so you can color, you can assign a color to different color to each layer, and in that situation, it just pops right out at you. you I agree. Oh, this I is agree. the second part. This is the first part. I worked on cleaning up a piece of music written by a Swiss guy who came to the Monica's thing in 19, Jean-Michel Beiner. Yep. And he wrote a thing that was Irish music on Alphorn. Oh, it's really hard. 
And he had all kinds of special instructions about play this part the first time, but not the second time and that sort of thing. I couldn't help out with color there, but I, uh, it took me a long time with his music, uh, which is another pet peeve of mine with Alphorn music. Don't make it any more than two pages. <laughs> Three pages is a killer. <laughs> So I, I, I've become pretty good at shrinking and fitting, and I've met my match a couple of times. But if, Robert, Jim is your doppelganger. <laughs> there, I, there's one that I, I finally have, and this is not for one of my camp books, but just for kind of my personal books to have for the band. And I have been fighting with this one piece, trying to get it onto one page and like it all repeats, but it's pretty close. And I'm just like, I keep going like back and forth and like talking to everyone else is like, okay, do this, do that. And then I'm like, I think I got to the point where I'm just like, I'm just going to put it on two pages and through compose it and stop worrying about it. I think two pages is a reasonable limit because it's easy to flip over if you're holding it in your hand, which we frequently do. Yeah, I, I like the the smaller kind of marching size books a lot of times. And then if, uh, you know, for a lot of the stuff I have memorized, I can just like put it back in my, especially my when I'm doing Oktoberfest gigs, just put it back in the suspenders of my later hose and just then I don't have to. That is really convenient, but I, I put everything on eight and a half by 11. Yeah. Okay. It's, wow. Yeah. The binder tune I was telling you about, it was a, it was four parts, actually five, and it was a squeeze getting it on two pages. Fortunately, once you learn, you get into the nuances of uh, finale, like you can shrink the notes and, and do all kinds of stuff to fit more line, more staff lines on a page and things like that. But boy, you're right. Time consuming. Yeah. If I got paid by the hour, they couldn't afford it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, Sean, are you planning on going to Monica's event this year? I have a conflict. Otherwise, I would have been. Um, I had talked to Monica about coming and I, I just couldn't make it work, unfortunately. Okay. So, yeah. So, Sean can't make it. I'll be there this year. Uh, so, I'll come out to West Virginia for that event and then. Uh, I don't know if Jim, I don't know if you're available, but we're doing a, a new event in Chicago. That's close. Little, a little bit closer than Utah Tia in May. So I don't know if you or uh, if any of the other people in your group are available, but it'd be nice to get uh, a couple of the people that I have and haven't met before out to that one. If, if the timing lines up for everyone. I've been putting a word out there. I, I can't do it myself, but I like that it's closer. That's the goal. I'm trying to spread out and start doing stuff more kind of regionally instead of trying to get everyone to come to Utah every year. Yeah, except the only mountains you have are in a high rise. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at doing some by the beach, too, so I'm, I'm not super focused on having to have the mountains every time. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we could play at a uh, Ohio State-Michigan game this year, Jim. <laughs> Having, as a former member of the Ohio State Marching Band, 
And knowing the Michigan Ohio State games, you don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I was in I, my last year in the band. We had a, just an amazing season. And of course, the last game is always Ohio State, Michigan. And it was in Ohio Stadium. And the team had not done well four or five years running before that. And this got them a chance to go to the Rose Bowl, winning this game. And you know how excited fans are? They mobbed the field. Well, they got the goalpost down. Now, just picture this. They didn't have breakaway goalposts like they do now. These were steel set in concrete. That's right. And they got the goalpost down. Oh, I haven't seen I haven't seen fans at any football game march away with the goalpost in a while. It's, it's been a few years since I've heard any of those stories. That's probably a good thing. <laughs> Because uh, it's amazing nobody got hurt. And actually, that year, there was such an excitement. They took the goalpost from Ohio State University all the way down High Street to the State House. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. They, uh, about a, and band members were there trying to give them a focus so the things didn't get too wild. And for an event like that, I, that's good. I can't call it an event. For a happening like that, an amazing that there wasn't the normal collateral damage to the community in these all these crazy people. The police blocked off the streets so they could do it. It kept them from going into the side streets and stuff like this. One of our sousaphone players had too much to drink and fell down on his horn. Uh, and it was a new horn. Band director was not a happy camper. But, um, yeah, that was a crazy, crazy, crazy time. Uh, so do you, do you get to, uh, are you still a fan of college football, or did you kind of let the, that, that fall away after you were done with the band there? I, I, I follow the band, and I follow the team. Uh, I can't afford the tickets. Oh, Yeah. It's it's crazy. Even with the number that they sell, it's crazy expensive. Well, my youths tried to tried to give you some what for in the Rose Bowl this year, but didn't quite get it done. So I got I got to congratulate Ohio State on that one. And it's not real fun being on the losing end of a, an instant classic game, but it was still fun to watch. Yeah, the year we were out there, we played USC, and the. The heavy quarterback on the other team, uh, USC, was O.J. Simpson. Wow. So, Amazing. and we, obviously we won that game. That, uh, yeah. <clears throat> That's right. Hey, Jim, as we uh, wrap this up, is there any particular piece that you love playing on the Alphorn? Is there, is, is there a piece that is really your piece that you always play? My personal favorite is Degenhauser Tall Blues. And uh, I can't remember the composer's name. Uh, I've, I, I've been in touch with Tony trying to get books of this guy's works. Most of the stuff he does, I like. It's 
not what you'd call traditional Alphorn. It's bluesy. He has a polka. Um, Mandevulser is another one of his. Uh, I'm shooting from the hip now. I can't think of the others. And I'd have to shuffle through my music to find a name for the composer. But it just seems like there isn't anything that he does that I really don't like. I really... I centered on that Degenhauser Tall Blues, and in 2019, I I brought extra books because uh, Monica let us say, "Oh, you got some music you like," and the group really liked it. I mean, it's just a fun piece of music. Awesome. I'll I'll uh, I, I I need to start getting a, an order of books put together, so I'll see if I can find something. If I if I can find them, I'll let you know. Get in touch with me because there is a web page for publisher on one of the pages that I got from who knows where that was unauthorized copy. <laughs> yeah. But it, there's a web page there and you can follow that and you'll find his stuff. Okay. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And then I'll, I'll see if I can find things and try to make sure that we're getting as much I, I like to get as much direct from the composers as possible so see what i can find as i start doing research on getting some other books ordered uh jim thank you so much for joining us today uh, i look forward to seeing you out in west virginia in a couple months for the listeners thank you for listening to this episode of the alporn podcast uh you can find our information uh, at the alporninstitute.com and uh, that's where you can find out about our events uh, and also feel free to reach out to us if you want to learn more about any of the events that we will be attending or hosting. Jim, thank you. Thank you very much for having me.